it absolutely right. No one does, but that's, that's where we want to plant. That's where we want to live, okay? With that, let's pray, and we'll get into the message. Father, we depend on you. We know, Lord Jesus, that your work is only done by your Spirit. We could show up, but like the bones in Ezekiel, uh, without your breath, without your Spirit, there's no life. So we depend on you this morning to breathe life into us and into the service and into the words from Scripture as we contemplate Second Peter this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we're starting a new series in Second Peter. Right near the end of your Bible, you can, if you have a Bible and want to, now's a good time to open up to that. If you're not aware where First and Second Peter are, if you go towards the back of your Bible, Hebrews, 13 chapters long, last of the bigger epistles, and then you've got the book of James, five chapters, then First Peter, then Second Peter. Depending on how fine the print in your Bible is, you can pass right over one of those smaller letters. We did look at First Peter last year. It was sort of a bit of a whirlwind through because it was only five lessons. It's five chapters long. There was a lot of content, but we sort of went through and we picked the big subjects and the big rocks. We'll start now in his second and his last letter. And I'm going to give just by way of introduction, I'm going to talk a little bit first. We'll end up in the passage in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. But I want to give an introduction that hopefully helps set the stage for the epistle itself. You remember Peter was kind of a rough cob. He grew up in the armpit of what was ancient Israel, up in the Galilee area. That's where the, the nations mingled with the Jews. It was not considered the suave, debonair place to be if you were a Jew. Down south in Judah, around Jerusalem, was the place to be. So Peter starts out sort of behind the curve. Perhaps he's a fisherman. He's a, a laborer, if you will, along with his brother Andrew. When Jesus meets them, of course, and he says, you have been fishers of men, and I'm going to make you a fisher of people. Anyone who reads through the gospel accounts, or if you do anything on the life of Peter itself, one of the things that's somewhat glaring or certainly comes up all the time, somewhere near the front of any of those studies, are Peter's failures. You know, when he blunders, he blunders spectacularly. And it's because he, he tends to be a guy, he's impetuous, He's probably a passionate, emotionally driven person, and so sometimes that gets him into trouble. So he fails spectacularly. So most notably, you remember, he boasted to Jesus in the midst of the other disciples, hey, if everyone else forsakes you, not me. I'm good to go. I'll follow you even to death. Remember, Jesus tells him, well, not quite. You know, before this night's over, you'll deny even knowing me three times, which is exactly what he does. His faux pas didn't end there because even as, as the, the great apostle to the Jews, you remember, he comes up again in Galatians when the apostle Paul records for us that he had to confront Peter publicly because Peter was living hypocritically once law-keeping Jews had come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. So not one faux pas, but probably more than those two big ones that we're aware of. So he was a guy that had some notable failures, and I think at least in part for that reason, uh, he was one of Jesus' chosen apostles. Peter's blunders did not exclude him from the ministry and the service Christ called him to. And you know, God knows the end from the beginning, so he knows every sin you and I are ever going to commit. There's nothing hidden from him. And tomorrow is as, as patently clear to 
to God as today and yesterday. He doesn't learn anything about you and me. When he picked Peter for service, it wasn't a mistake. And we want to make sure that when we see Peter, we think about him the way I hope we think about ourselves. The failures we experience in life, and if we're honest, they're often, and sometimes like Peter's, they're grand, they're spectacular, they're on their blundering scale. They were never meant to exclude him from service. And your failures and mine are not meant to exclude us from the things God calls us to be about. I do think that they tend to have this impact, this effect on us. We're going along in life and we think we're all that or we're capable and we fall flat on our face. And it's a great reminder that God says, you can't do this on your own. This has got to be me redeeming you, me at work in and through your life. You can't do this on your own. But the blunders in Peter's life did not end his ministry. You know, he goes right through to the end of his life. So we want to make sure that when we think about him, it's not so much finger pointing at someone who made some pretty spectacular mistakes, because we want to think about him the way we want to think about ourselves as well. Lord, we fail. We sin. Thank you. There's forgiveness. There's confession. And we get up and we keep going again. So we want to make sure when we think of Peter, other people in the the Bible, the characters that are written down, recorded for our help, that we think about them the way God did, which was graciously knowing from the beginning every sin they'd commit, that wasn't excluding him from ministry. It doesn't exclude us either. So when we sin, when we blow it, big or little, we confess that, we get up, and we keep going. It was in John 21 that Peter was reconciled. Do you remember? It's a great scene because it's the fisherman back on his home turf, so to speak. You remember he and John and the boys are fishing on the Sea of Galilee again. It's where Jesus had initially, John 1's a little different, but in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus calls Peter and Andrew there at the Sea of Galilee at the beginning. And so then at the end, they're right back where they started and Jesus is reassuring Peter when he asks him three times, do you love me? It's not to rub his face in his failure, it's to restore him so that he can get up and keep going. So right back there in John 21, it's a, it was painful, no doubt, for Peter because he sort of exclaims on the third query, do you love me, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. Okay, Peter is restored, and he's restored in the context of the same guys he boasted before. He's restored their Jesus' kindness. So our failures don't have to define us, and failure did not ultimately define Peter. Peter also had great successes, guys. I mean, his, the record of what God did through Peter is pretty notable. Remember, he preached on Pentecost with 3,000 people believed and were saved in one, one setting, one hearing. 3,000 people came to faith the day Peter preached on Pentecost. You remember 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. It was also Peter specifically. Uh, the Roman Catholics make much of a text in the Gospels where Jesus says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And so the Roman Catholics say the Pope, he's inherited the keys of Peter, that he has the authority of Christ on earth. You know, the Pope is it. But what you see in Acts is I believe the fulfillment of Jesus saying to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. In Scripture, and this goes back to some Old Testament uh, folks in Isaiah's day as well, but the keys were not only authority, but you opened doors with a key and you closed doors and kept them closed with keys. This comes up in Revelation as well. 
So as I understand it, he told Peter, I'm giving you the authority to open the new covenant kingdom of God to these people groups. And so what you see in the Acts of the Apostles is it's Peter who preaches and the Jews receive the Spirit, the new covenant blessing, they receive the Spirit on Pentecost. And then Acts 8 is a little unusual because others preach the gospel to the Samaritans. And the text is quite clear. The Samaritans believed, but they didn't get the Spirit. And people have different views of this, but, but I think my simplistic view is helpful. They don't get the Spirit until Peter comes and prays for them. So the Samaritans get the Spirit when Peter, by Christ's authority, opens the new covenant kingdom and blessing and the presence of the Spirit on their lives. And then it's Peter in Acts 10 who proclaims the gospel to the Gentiles, the household of Cornelius, and then they get the Spirit as well. So it was through Peter that Jesus opens this new covenant blessing that we take for granted today. It was through Peter those doors were opened to those three separate people groups. Uh, we don't often think of this, but you know, you look at the Gospel of Mark, most assume, and I do too, that Mark is actually Peter's record of Jesus' life. Remember, John Mark worked with not only Paul, but with Peter as well. That when we're reading the Gospel of Mark, we're reading Peter's account of Jesus' life during his earthly ministry. And then Peter, of course, traveled more broadly than, than his home country, and he ends up, in of all places, Rome. Here's this Galilean fisherman whose life ends in Rome. History tells us crucified upside down when he was executed, gave his final testimony to Christ through a martyr's death. And then maybe most spectacularly to me. So when you and I, when we see the new Jerusalem, I don't know what this will look like. I have no concept. I mean, Revelations defines some element. When you and I walk up to that great pearl gate, set in that big wall, what are we going to see on that foundation of that city? We're going to see Peter's name because the apostles are on the foundation stones. Their names are recorded on the eternal city. That's, that's a pretty high commendation, isn't it? So I don't know if it'll be Simon or Simeon or Peter or Petros. I have no idea. But when you and I go up to that city, Peter's name is recorded there. And I don't think that's true of any of us in here unless you share his name. So that's high praise indeed. If you remember last year, 1 Peter was really looking at that epistle, and Peter was saying that Christians needed to see life and embrace life as an exile living in a foreign country. And so it was about exile living, understanding that earth isn't our permanent home, certainly as it is, that God's kingdom is our eternal home, and that we're journeying through this earthly life, but we're headed to some place that's our true home. In 2 Peter, he's going to address again, maybe in a little different way, what does life in exile on this earth look like for us? Now, he talked some about that in 1 Peter, but I think he adds to it in his last epistle. He's writing to the same group. We know that. If you look at 1 Peter 1.1, it's to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion, then he names a number of places that are in modern-day Turkey, central and eastern Turkey. And then in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you. So same people group, this exile group, and he's going to tell them what life should look like for them 
looking forward ultimately to Christ's return or their presence with him. Peter, and I hope you have a study sheet, Peter's calling this same group to live out their exile days with diligence. That's one of the key words in this second epistle from Peter. It's the word diligence, and let me just qualify this. Uh, the New American Standard translation is Mike's favorite English translation. So if I can, that's what I read at home. I teach through the ESV because that seems to be the predominant English translation, and it's a good one. And I still think the ESV study Bible is the best study Bible available. So I teach out of the ESV. In 2 Peter 1, verse 5, if you look there, in the, new, excuse me, in the ESV it says, make every effort. Three words to translate one Greek word, spude. The New American Standard says diligence. So if I read the New American Standard, it says, be diligent. The ESV says, make every effort. But you sort of get the picture. It's I'm focused and I'm working on it. That Greek word means haste, speed, zeal, pursuit, exertion, study. You get the sense. It's this, so whether you say diligent or make every effort, it's sort of I'm focusing all the ways I can to do something specific, something particular. I'm bringing to bear my focus, my work, my energies, all that I can to do something particular. We'll talk about what those specifics are here in just a second. And then in chapter 1, verse 10, verse 15, and chapter 3, verse 14, he uses a similar word, same word, family, spudazzo, to do one's best, to hasten, to labor over. So as Peter's life is winding down, because this is his last letter, he tells us he's near the end of his life. We'll see that in a future letter. He's winding down. He's thinking about, what do I want to leave behind for these guys? He says, be diligent, work hard, be focused, exert yourself as you look down the road to the end of your life. When you see Christ, be diligent about how you're living life now. And we'll talk about specifically the goal that he has in mind. So exiles, looking at a life that's temporary here, heading to their true home, Pete says, live that life with diligence. Uh, first uh, chapter 1 verse 5 look there now for just a second he says <clears throat> excuse me he says make every effort be diligent make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge now he goes on to a list of eight qualities but he starts with faith so he says first of all be diligent, make every effort to add or supplement your faith with virtue and then knowledge and then self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and love. So it's almost like Galatians 5 when you read about the nine fruits of the Spirit. How do I know Christ is at work in my life? Well, these are the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in me. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Well, here it's a different set of characteristics, but it's the same thought that I start my life, of my journey, my exile, by faith, but I'm supposed to work, I'm supposed to be diligent about adding other qualities to my life of faith. And when I do that, I end up looking more fully like Christ. Be diligent, grow in Christ-like formation. If you go down to verse 10, chapter 1, there he says, be all the more diligent... 
to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, those eight qualities we'll look at specifically later, he says you'll never fall. So here he says, be all the more diligent as you add these Christ-like qualities to your faith. It's obvious to others and yourself that Christ's calling is on your life. And life seen like a walk, I'm walking forward towards my future joining with Christ. And if I live diligently along those Christ-like qualities, it's like I don't fall down in that progression. I'm walking right up into eternity and I'm walking successfully through life because I'm being diligent about adding these qualities to the faith that started my life. Then if you turn a page perhaps in your Bible to chapter 3 verse 14, he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to be found by him uh, Peter's anticipating the return of Christ. Uh, if, if we see that, th th that'll be the event where Christ calls and we'll see him. Or we'll die and we'll see him. But the thought is, my life, my exile life, is going to be consummated when I see Christ, whether that's through death or through the rapture, the call of Christ to the church. Either way, that's the point in time I'm living towards. And so he says, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. You know, if you guys go to a wedding, you, you probably make sure that the clothes you put on are clean. That your thought is, I'm going to this important event or, or I'm part of this entourage. They, the dress should be appropriate. It should be clean. And that's what Peter's saying. We're to be diligent about presenting Christ a spotless life. This does not mean we don't sin, but the goal is I want to be spotless in my life, diligently spotless in my life, avoiding sin. You know, in the, the new heaven we, we wear, we're given uh, white garments. You know, they're spotless. They're without stains or spots. And that's the thought here. It's to live a lifestyle that is free from moral spots so that when I see Christ, I'm glad for the way I've lived life. John, 1 John brings up this same thing. The same thought of seeing Christ with confidence. That's what Peter is engendering here too. So on this theme of diligence, so you're in exile, life in exile should be about being diligent, prepared to see Christ. Be diligent in developing your faith and Christ-like godliness, adding those qualities to our faith. Be diligent to live out the truth of our heavenly calling. Uh, I met a guy years ago and I worked with him. And I heard him cuss every day, and I heard what his life was like. And I kid you not, he took me aside, and he knew I was a Christian. I was, guys, I was a dummy. My life had not been transformed much. Uh, yes, for sure. But he knew I was a Christian, and he pulls me over one day, and he says, Mike, I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm a Christian. Well, this is saying don't live that way. It, uh, be diligent to to live out the truth of your heavenly calling. We shouldn't have to say to someone, I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm a Christian. Be diligent to live morally upright, spotless lives, prepared to see Christ. So with that expectation, I don't want to be caught with my hand in the cookie jar when dad comes in the kitchen. You know that kind of thought? My hand's in the cookie jar. I never did this, but my hand was in the cookie jar, and mom, and I, it's not supposed to be, and someone comes in, you know, what's, I'm paying, you know, 
my conscience. I, I've been caught. Well, Peter says, don't live that way. You know, do the right thing and live spotlessly until you see Christ. I hope you have a study sheet. I just want mentally, in, for ourselves, for our own benefit, do a quick inventory. Now, we'll talk specifically this morning about some specific ways we can be diligent. We'll talk more about that in future weeks as well. But if you did just a big rocks inventory of your life, if I just look on my life, what areas of my life am I focused and diligent regarding faithfulness to Christ? Now, no one's perfect. But if we just say, there's some areas in my life where I've, I've tried to be faithful, I've tried to be diligent. I don't know what that would be. That might be a little different for all of us. Where are those areas? What are those areas? Where have we been successful? That's a good thing. Where have we been successful? And after you write those down, look at your life. In what areas of my life have I lacked appropriate diligence? I've been spiritually lazy or I've been haphazard. You know, I'm supposed to live focused in this exile life. You know, where have I not been focused? Where have I sort of said it doesn't matter? I'm just going to live life as I, as I see fit. I know, I know I've got issues in my life, but I'm choosing not to address them because I don't want to, because it takes work, and I'm just not up for it. Where are those as well? That might be someplace God wants to talk to us about in the future. So Peter three times talks to the exiles about being diligent. But he says he's also being diligent. This is back in chapter 1, verse 15. Peter says, and, and I love this, he says, I will make every effort. I will be diligent, Peter says, so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter knows his life is almost over, almost certainly written from Rome, probably not long before his execution. But as his life is winding down, he said, I am working hard so that after I'm gone, you can recall, you'll remember these key lessons that God wanted me to record so you'd have them in the future long after I'm gone. And of course, we've had them for 2,000 years, not only that initial audience, of course, but every generation since of Christians right on down to us today. So as he was winding down his life, he was saying, I'm being diligent. And guys, you know, as we age, there's a mentality in the West that says we get to a certain stage of life and we quit serving, we retire. And you don't see that in Peter and you don't see that in the apostles. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you'll see almost all those guys, no matter how long they lived, all but John were executed as they proclaimed the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. They were still working. There was no retirement. So even if we retired from a vocation, an income-producing vocation, it doesn't mean spiritually we ever rest on our laurels. One of the things that frustrated Kathy and I in our early days in the faith was we wanted to grow. We, wanted, we were serious. And you know what we couldn't find? We couldn't find almost any older Christians who were interested enough to invest in somebody that wanted to grow. They just, they were very few and far between. Our first Sunday school at Topeka Bible Church, everyone in it was old enough to be our parents. Everyone in that group was old enough to be our parents. And we loved it because they were serious about the faith. And we'd go through these Sunday schools and those were the folks we hung out with. We want to make sure too for our church, we have a lot of young families which I love. And we've got great families and great guys that the elders of this church are looking forward to at the right time, passing the baton to. I'm thrilled. 
But guys, as we age, as the older ones of us age, we don't retire spiritually. Peter said, I'm bringing diligence to bear near the end of my life. I'm still working. I'm still focused. I'm, I still have zeal about what God wants me to do. So we want to make sure whatever stage of life we're at, none of us are beyond this call to be diligent, not only in our Christ-like transformation, which is the primary thing, but in the ways God wants us to be diligent for the benefit of others, because that, that was Peter's point on his own diligence. Uh, 1 Peter 1.13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we say, well, what does a life set fully on the hope of seeing Christ look like? It's a life of diligence, focus, zeal, exertion, labor towards Christ-like formation and faithfulness. It's a call to diligence sounds overwhelming. Consider this. If, I, if, you, if you hear this this morning, you're saying, man, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I'm up for that. You know, I'm already, I'm already working eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or whatever. You know, consider this for just a minute. All of us, we are being diligent about something in life, I guarantee. We're being focused about some area of life we might be working hard at not working hard. You know what I mean? We're focused. Some of us are, are highly focused and zealous about hobbies. You know, hang out with somebody for a while and, and see what they're zealous about. That's probably where they're investing themselves. Some folks are very zealous about hobbies. Some of us are laboring with focus at our business or a place of employment. I'm not saying any of these things are bad, by the way. Just where is our zeal? Where is our focus? being zealous in our efforts as a friend or a spouse or a parent. But this would be the thing. And by the way, Jesus isn't a killjoy. I'm not a killjoy. I believe in having fun. I believe in, in all God's common grace. Christians should be, above all people, able to enjoy the things God's given us to. But, but think of it this way. At the end of my life, when I look back, did my diligence in my hobbies or the things I just like to do, did they serve the overarching purpose of God's work in my life and God's work through my life? Now, I will tell you, most of us, I think, start with an inflated sense of our own value. Maybe you guys were like me. You know, God was going to save the world through Mike 40 years ago. I don't think it happened. You know, I thought I was going to be an evangelist and God would use me in this way. And you know what you find the longer you walk with the Lord? God's work is not so much through me, it's in me. Because <laughs> I need transformation, and so do you. So God's pleased to use us, but you remember the, the picture of God using us by Paul in 2 Corinthians? You remember what it is? It's a cracked clay jar. We have a treasure in an earthen vessel. It's a cracked clay jar. So most of what God's doing in us, His work is in us. It's that transformation process. And some of it is through us too. But God doesn't need you or I to save the world. He's perfectly capable on His own. But He's pleased to use broken clay jars, your, your failed humanity and mine, because that honors Him. And it's supposed to make it obvious that if God could use Mike Halpin, this is the thought, he can use anyone. 
It's not about might. You, you, you know what I'm saying? It's not about you and I and our skill set and our gifts because we could be the most gifted person on earth and if the Spirit of God isn't at work, nothing happens. So he can use anyone and we want to be diligent so that he can use us as well. So his primary thing is transformation. So those areas of life that we see ourselves giving zeal to, we're enthusiastic about, we're focused on, and we're working, do they serve God's ultimate purposes? Then we're good. So if you have a hobby and your hobby is recreational for you, it's restorative to you. You know, we, we work, we get worn out. Jesus took his boys for a walk, get away from the crowd so we can sit down and chill. We're good with that. So if I see recreation as that time which God blesses me so I can get back in the race of life, that's great. So it's not saying don't invest in certain areas of life. It's only to suggest when I come to the end of my life and look back, will I be glad for the areas of life that I was diligent toward? Or will I look back and say, man, I invested a ton, a ton. I talked to a guy recently. I thought this was interesting. He was a hunter. He's a bear hunter. And he was telling me how many trips he's taken to Canada to hunt black bears. Now, I have nothing against hunting or black bears or Canada. But he said, at one point, he said, I've spent a fortune. And he meant it. Guided, stuffed bears. He said, I've spent a fortune on bear hunting. And I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> it's probably not where I would spend a fortune if I had it. As we look back, will we be glad for those areas of life? We were zealous. We were enthusiastic because ultimately they served God's purposes in our life. And guys, this is God's purpose bigger than you or me being used by God to win the world, save the world, bless other people. I don't know how God's going to use you. I don't know how God will use me in the future necessarily. But I do know this is what God's doing in your life and mine if you're a Christian. Listen to this from Romans 8.29. And this is actually, Romans 8.29 is a very brief version of what Peter's talking about throughout his epistle. Those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to what? <clears throat> if you're a Christian, what did God predestine you to? He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So big picture, beyond this time and this life, your life and mine, God is populating a new heaven and new earth with his children. Those who are born again are sons of the Father through faith in Jesus. And what God is doing now in every Christian life, absent none, Whatever else he's, he is or isn't doing, he is doing this. He's at work to conform you and I to the image of Christ. That's a given. In all that's going on in life, God's great purpose in your life is your transformation into the image of Christ. Anything else he does is gravy because he doesn't need you and I to do anything. But he wants to transform us so when we get to heaven... Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? If they hadn't sinned, they would, have they would have reproduced sinless, innocent people just like themselves. You and I look like Adam and Eve sinfully because they were sinners. But Christians derive our new life, this is Romans 5, from who? 
from Christ. You remember the phrase, God has no grandchildren. You either are a son of the Father through faith in Christ or you're not a son. We all derive our new spiritual life through Christ. And Jesus is the paradigm. He's the image that all of God's children in eternity will bear, which is perfection. It's all that we should be, nothing that we shouldn't be. So in our diligence at home and work, zealous pursuit of hobbies and sports, is our transformation into Christ's image in view. Is that where we're going? Because that's where God's going, his work in us. Uh, turn back to 2 Peter 1 if you haven't, and I'll mention too, um, this is more expositional than if you were here for the Deuteronomy study or if you were here for the study through the characters throughout the Bible. Um, let me just use Deuteronomy as an example. You know, the study in Deuteronomy was we start in Deuteronomy 1, we read up until we get to a big rock subject and we stop. That becomes the key text for that lesson. And so the lesson is somewhat singular. So here's an issue that's raised in Deuteronomy. And now we'll go to other parts of Deuteronomy first. And then we'll go to other parts of the Bible. All of these are lenses on that first issue, that first topic. That's fairly easier to teach in my, in my mind, in my view. Because when you just teach expositionally, you have to jump through all the changes of thought process that Peter writes through. So I say this to tell you, it's, it requires more of you <laughs> to follow along, okay? It requires a little bit more of the gray cells to stay focused because we go from one phrase and one thing to another. It's not that they're not connected, they are, but it's not as easy as taking one primary topic and expanding on that. So the expositional treatment of Scripture requires a little bit more of you. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4, let's start reading there now. With that introduction, Simeon Peter, he goes by his uh, full or sort of Middle Eastern version of his name there instead of Simon Peter. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Guys, I'll work through this fairly quickly just for time's sake. I, I hope I can finish what I've got here. Verse 1 from this letter, he tells us right off the bat, it's from Simon, Simeon, Peter. He describes himself as a servant and an apostle of Christ. So Peter starts by saying, I'm Peter and I'm a servant. And in the Greek, that's doulos. And you're, you may be aware doulos can be translated either slave or servant. And you remember in the day in which this was written, slavery was part and parcel of the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire. So slavery in that day could be along the lines that we typically think of, slavery in the southern United States. You remember, so I bought a person. They're my chattel. They're my property. I do with them as I want. That was part of slavery in the ancient world on one end. But the other end of slavery was 
household slaves slash servants. You remember for many people, being a household slave or servant, that was the way to get fed. That was the way to have a home. Indentured servants, you remember the law provided someone's a servant and it's their time's up. Let's say their six or seven years are up and they're ready to leave. And they say, you know what? Man, I like it here. I want to stay here. So God had a provision for that in which they would say, I'm part of that household forever. When you read Ephesians 5 starts it, but into Ephesians 6, and when you read Colossians 3, we call these household texts. And, you know, so it starts with husbands and wives, and then it goes to children and parents, and then who does it go to? And then it goes to slaves and servants. And you know why? Because they're all part of the same household. And within that extended household, God was saying, this is the way you guys treat each other. Well, Peter starts by saying, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a household servant in Jesus' household. In other words, he starts with this very humble introduction. I'm Peter. Be like in an AA meeting. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm an alcoholic. Well, Peter starts and he says, Peter, who's a slave. Peter, who's a servant of Jesus. He starts humbly. But then he adds, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what's an apostle? So put this in context. So Peter is one of 12 men Jesus prayed about, prayed all night about, and personally selected to be his key representatives. And among the 12, Peter is the first. Peter's the first among the specially chosen 12. So Peter is starting out humbly, but then he says, and I'm an apostle, which means... I've been particularly chosen by Christ. I've been specifically sent by Christ with Christ's name, with Christ's authority to speak for Christ. Now that's important. And what I love about this is this. Peter has the same combination that you see in Jesus himself. He brings to bear humility in his exercise of authority. He doesn't say... I'm not an apostle. Don't listen to what I say. He says, I am a servant, but I'm also Christ's apostle. So his leadership is a combination of humility with authority. So what you should see in the church today, the exercise of authority in Christ's model is through humility. And I would just warn you, in this church or any place else, Luke 6 says, Every student, when he is fully trained, is like his teacher. Who is informing your life? Who do you look up to? And will the people you look up to and take your cues from, will you become more like Christ because of that? And if they don't combine humility with authority, the the Christ-like transformation is going to be a challenge. Humility with authority is Christ's model for leadership. And you see that's exactly what Peter's starting with when he writes this last letter. He then says to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I do want to point out carefully, obtain. I could say I, uh, I hiked hard up the mountain and I obtained a piece of gold. And obtaining there would mean Mike worked hard, Mike went through all this to get something, to procure something for himself. And that is not what this term means. This term means I was given something. 
I obtained it because God gave it to me. So here Peter says to those, his audience, are those who have obtained, been given, been gifted a faith. This is just like Ephesians 2 verse 8. When, when Paul is talking about salvation and God's grace, he says the faith he says, you can't boast about that faith because the very faith you have was a grace gift. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. Paul says it in Ephesians 2.8. He also says this. He says, your faith is just like mine. Peter's the apostle of apostles, and he says, your faith, all of your faith, he says, your faith is of the same kind, the same quality, the same value as mine. My faith isn't any better than your faith. My faith isn't any more elevated than your faith. Your faith is exactly the same kind that I have. And I love that for this reason. There's this sense in which you know that in God's call on us, the way he gifts us spiritually, it's different, isn't it? We have different spheres of influence. We have different levels of authority to exercise. But at the end of the day, the faith, the value of the faith we have, it's all equal. There's no difference. So it, it's in God's kingdom, there's no second-class citizens. In God's family, there's no less-loved children. Sort of the foundation of all that we are, it's equal, absolutely equal across the board. You've got to love that, that the apostle of the apostles is the one saying, your faith, it's as good as mine. Your faith is of the same kind, the same value, the same substance. And then he says, having obtained that faith, it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to say something here. Uh, how was it that God could gift us faith? How was it that God could gift us faith? Peter here says, it's a righteous gift. And the only way God could righteously gift you and I faith is if Jesus procured it. If Jesus didn't die for your sins and mine, didn't rise from the dead for your justification and mine, you could not be gifted faith to be saved. Peter says it's a right gift, it's a righteous gift because it comes from Jesus' righteous work of redemption. The gift of faith can be rightly given to sinners like us because Jesus procured it through his own righteous acts of redemption. So God is free to do that. He wouldn't be free otherwise. It's a righteous gift, your faith and mine. And then I do want to point out too, before moving on, look at the phrase at the end of that. That's at verse 1. Uh, Through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think it's the Jehovah Witnesses have uh, mistranslated John 1. You know, when you read John 1, John's point is to say that Jesus, who is the Word, the expression of the Father, is the same as deity, that the Word is God. God is the Word. goes right back to Genesis 1.1. So they've changed the article to make it sound like Jesus is a God. He's one God of many gods, which is a mistranslation. The text is clear, but they've changed a verse to try and make it sound like Jesus isn't God, as if changing one verse would make it plain that Jesus isn't God. Peter says here, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not our God and our Savior. 
there's one article in the Greek. It's our God who is our Savior. So absolutely no ambiguity. Peter says, Peter who knew Jesus, Peter says Jesus is Theos and Soter. He's, he's God and he's Savior. The man Jesus is both man and God. It's an unambiguous claim. Amen. Unambiguous claim. Uh, look at verse 2. Guys, I'm going to have to race through a couple of points here. Uh, let me see. What should I highlight? Uh, let me highlight this. Grace and peace. Um, if you look in verse 2, um, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Another key word in 2 Peter is knowledge. Uh, in the Greek, gnosis and epignosis. And it, generally the thought is, it's not just that I know, I know in math fact, 2 plus 2 is 4. The thought is, it's personal, it's that I've experienced something. It's I know, like, uh, do I know the president? And I say, well, I know who the president is. But that doesn't mean I know the president. But if I sit down with the president, I eat with the president, I chat with him, I fish with him, whatever, I'd say, oh, I know him, I've hung out with him. Well, that's the kind of knowledge Peter's talking about. That term comes up seven times, and the issue is, and this is key, your transformation into the image of Christ is dependent on your knowledge of Christ. This isn't about a, a merely intellectual exercise, and it's not merely an academic pursuit. It's that you know Christ. It's that you know Christ. And Peter's theme is this. The more fully you know Christ, you'll be like Christ. So if God's aim in your life and mine is to be transformed into Christ's image, what should I be about? Getting to know Christ. Guys, as believers, we can exist as believers for decades and not look very much more like Christ than we did when we began depending on the focus of our life, depending on where our diligence and our zeal and our enthusiasm was spent. But if God's great purpose and plan in your life is conformity to the image of Christ, the way he does that is through the knowledge of Christ. To the degree that you know Christ, you'll bear his image in this lifetime. To the degree that we don't know Christ, we cannot bear his image lived out now when we see christ scripture says we'll be like him the transformation will be complete but god's work in this lifetime is still that transformation and it comes through knowing him and how do you know christ so if knowing christ is a thing how do i know christ so i pray don't i that's i'm talking to the lord that's the relational as aspect i'm talking to christ and hopefully you guys were praying regularly, and praying by praying, I don't mean I just, God bless so-and-so and so-and-so. That's not what I'm talking about. God bless so-and-so, absolutely. But, let, but let's have a conversation with the Lord about the things that are on our heart. That's relational. And what would the other half of that communication be? We would read our Bible. We would meditate in our Bible. We would meet Christ in the text of Scripture. And not to get smarter and not to impress anyone else, to know Christ. 
the more we know Christ, the more fully we'll reflect his image. And that's the goal. And that's Peter's goal through this whole epistle. It's to know Christ. Uh, let's see. You know, I'm already long, so I'm going to close down. Let's see. Let me close with this, and I'll still run long. Apologies. Uh, I read a book recently, a biography, John Newton, uh, From Disgrace to Amazing Grace, written by Jonathan Aitken. And uh, this was well-reviewed, and it's been out uh, for 14 years, but I hadn't read it. And I'm, so I pick it up, and uh, for about the first third of the book, you know what I find about John Newton? I don't like him. And you wouldn't like him either. Because, guys, he's a jerk. You know, a wretch like me, he meant it. He was a wretch. And what you find on the front end of his life is he's born to a guy whose career he's a sea captain. So he's not aristocracy, he's not the wealthy of the wealthy, but he's pretty well to do. And so young John, who's very, very smart and has a prodigious memory, uh, is given by his dad, by his dad's connections, great opportunities to start a successful career. And you know what he does? He just throws them away. He's disrespectful. He's not honest. You can't count on him. He is not a nice person. And as that young, not nice person, that's when he enters the slave trade. And he's buying slaves on West Africa. He's helping ship them to the Caribbean and to the southern United States. And he doesn't see anything wrong. And guys, he's abusing slaves like other sailors are abusing slaves on those slave ships. That's John Newton. And then there's a voyage he takes across the Atlantic. He's headed home, and there's a major storm. And he's afraid for his life. They think the ship is going to go down, and it looks like it's going to. And so he cries out to God. And you see the beginnings of a change in John Newton. He's a little bit more serious. He's thinking about some things. Now, guys, he goes back to England. So, of course, he didn't die. He goes back to England. And you know what? He, he's, he's come to faith. And he started growing. And he's interested in the faith. And he started reading his Bible. And he started memorizing his Bible. And he started listening to great Christian preachers, Whitfield and Wesley. And he's meeting these guys. And he's talking to them. And you know what he does next? He's made the captain of what? A slave ship. I kid you not. This isn't before his conversion. This is after his conversion. He's the captain of a slave ship. He buys slaves in West Africa. He delivers them to the Caribbean and to our southern states. And he thinks he's doing okay at this point. And I would say, I think they said on record, his, his uh, commuting of slaves across the Atlantic, at least on one, uh, there, were no, there was no loss of life, which was highly unusual. They, they, you could lose a third, a fourth, a half of the slaves on your ship, they overloaded them so badly. But you know what he's doing in the cabin while he's transporting slaves? He's reading his Bible. <laughs> he's studying sermons. And he's growing. And when he gets back to England, he takes on a job as a, he's a government official in Liverpool. And he's traveling the, the British countryside, listening to all the, the great preaching he can. And what you see by the end of his story is this. I was so convicted and so encouraged. You end up with this lovely paradigm of humility and authority. This guy who was just the most thoughtful shepherd you, you would ever find. I mean, for the people in his church, you remember William Cooper slash Cowper was a, this hugely smart, talented, fragile 
Christian. He lived with John Newton for more than a year. Newton helped him when his faith was just, he thought he was being consumed by the fires of hell, literally. He was put in insane asylum. He's living with John Newton. He just had that kind of care. His house was open to people all the time. And you end up with this guy who's just the most exemplary pastor, shepherd. He preaches the truth, the gospel. Back in those days, it was a big deal if you're a dissenter or a church of England. And he broke all those barriers. He was meeting with guys from every walk of Christian life. And of course, he wrote the only hymns and Amazing Grace is only one of those. But, but just like Peter, you know, Peter's kind of this, this blockhead guy who's impetuous, but you look at him, what he becomes, because he knows Christ, is just exemplary. And you look at somebody like John Newton, it's the same thing. You just take a guy that you and I wouldn't like, and he's transformed because he knows Christ, and Christ's life becomes more fully reproduced in him because he knows him. That's what Second Peter's getting at. It's that God's work in you and me is to make us like Christ. And he calls us to be diligent about that focus, to be zealous about knowing Christ, to become more like Christ, to be ready to see Christ and with Christ inhabit that new heaven and new earth. So it's a great trip we're called to, isn't it? Let, let, let me pray. Actually, do you guys have a, do you have a text? Was there a text for this morning? Ben, do you have a t- Oh, let's put that up. Yeah, thanks. Let me pray. You guys will stand and we'll, uh, we'll read that and we'll, we'll worship. Lord, you, you saved many, many countless wretches like us. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for showering your love on us and for giving us your spirit and your word and each other to transform us into Christ's image. Amen. Guys, let's read this together. You stand, yawn, stretch. This is from Colossians 1, 21 through 23, and it's, it's more along that same line. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation.